is Cedar Hills Community Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a place to be loved, a place to belong, and a place to serve. My name is Kent. I'm one of the staff here, and I'm delighted that you're here with me today. We've been thinking a lot about how do we move into a future that is uh, uncertain and sometimes apparently plagued with difficulties or um, trouble, because we know we live in a time when everything seems like it's up for grabs, and so it's a, it's a difficult time maybe to live. And we've discovered that at, at the core of who we are as people is we're the kind of people who say we're going to love. No matter what the future throws at us, we're going to love God and we're going to love each other. We're going to do what the loving thing is. And then we talked about being light and that it doesn't matter how dark the world gets, we're going to shine light into darkness and that makes a big difference. But we're going to do that wisely, so we're going to walk with wisdom. And sometimes that wisdom requires some submission, sometimes some surrender, and always a lot of trust, trusting God to be at work. And that over all of this or around all of this, we're going to tie unity, that we're going to keep uh, focus on what's most important. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more today and over the next several weeks about what is most important as we shift gears toward um, what is really at the core of who we are. And we're going to do that by looking at a passage from Mark today, Mark chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible or your phone or your tablet, whatever you're reading Scripture on these days, if you wouldn't mind opening it up to Mark chapter 1, and then you can read along. Mark 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses, but then we're going to go a little deeper. I always like to say it's handy to keep your Bible open throughout the message. You can keep track of where I'm at. And also someone this week pointed out that there are times when I'm preaching and I go too fast for you to keep track of all the verses that I've been talking about. And not everyone is aware that we do have outlines available for each message. And they're actually on the table right outside the door. So on your way in, there's a sign that says sermon notes. If you want to keep track of where I'm at and what I'm saying and can't write it all down, uh, most of those verses are usually written on that outline for you. So feel free to grab that. Or if you want to go get one now, feel free to go get that. But we're going to start with Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. And as we're reading these verses and digging into them, I want you to know that you're in my prayers. And this is the prayer that I'm praying for you. The Lord be with you. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of those of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So part of what we've been talking about over the last many weeks is vision and mission. And a lot of organizations do this when they're talking about kind of get, trying to get their bearings. And most organizations clarify their vision and mission with some series of inspiring propositions. 
They like tell you what they're all about. And I'm going to read a sample of an actual vision statement from a company. Here's what it says. Their mission is to help people perform better, think faster, and live better using a proven blend of ancient knowledge and brand new technologies. And this is from the company Bulletproof. Does, has anyone in this room bought any products from Bulletproof? Anybody? Okay, I was intrigued by this invitation because I thought they're offering to help me reach a state of higher performance, which I want, both physically and mentally. And so, not knowing exactly what their products were, I googled it and, because I wanted to reach my full potential. And I was a little disappointed when the very first bulletproof product that appeared in my search was this one. It's coffee. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the blend of like new technology and ancient wisdom and you're going to make me a better person just by drinking coffee. And, and I refuse. Most of you know I don't drink coffee. So I'm like, now what am I going to do? Well, I did discover there's other performance enhancing substances that they sell. None as interesting as coffee, I don't think. But um, this is the problem with propositions about vision. They can like suck you in and sometimes be really misleading. Well, like you read it on paper and you say, well, this sounds really good. High performance, you know, make your peak, peak performance, all that. But then in reality, it becomes a little disappointing. Is it really true? So we do this, so do all organizations. And we've been talking for years about, you know, we are the kind of people who we want to, you know, love, belong, and serve. So you know you're loved and you love others and you know that you're part of something bigger than yourself and that you're here to serve other people. And we do that with authenticity and hospitality and forgiveness and restoration. And I don't know if those are inspiring words for you. We hope they are inspiring. But they actually don't reveal the, the real core of who we are, the real identity of what's most important, of what actually drives us as a community, as a congregation, as an institution. The thing that actually drives us is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is who we are and this is what we do. We meet Jesus and then we follow him. And we're constantly trying to lead other people to follow him as well and to do our best job in doing that. So we thought it might be helpful over the course of the next few weeks to talk more specifically about this core thing, meeting Jesus. And look at some examples in Scripture where people met Jesus and the difference it made for them, and then wondering if that wouldn't help us be transformed and also introduce other people to Jesus. So this is the goal of our next little series. We're going to talk about this, and it was a little challenging. All the staff are going to get a chance to share one of their favorite encounters with Jesus, and um, there's so many, and they're, they're amazing, fascinating encounters. It was hard to narrow it down. And I've waffled quite a bit, but I did finally land on one for today, and that is John the Baptist. We're going to look at John the Baptist and what happened before he met Jesus, what was his life like then, and then we're going to look at when he actually met Jesus, and then we're going to look at what happened after he met Jesus. This is a common way for people to give their testimony. I can talk to you about my own life, about what it was like before Jesus, and then I can tell you exactly how I met Jesus, and then I can tell you about what things have happened since I met him. So we're going to do that for John the Baptist and we're going to start by looking at his before Jesus phase. And my summary of this whole phase of his life was this. John the Baptist was a superstar prophet. If you know anything about John the Baptist and his story, this is an amazing story. John was very successful. He was no doubt 
a superstar. He appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a message of repentance, and it worked. Now, this is every preacher's dream, you know. And, and with him, it's even more amazing because he's like going out to this isolated place where there's not m- many people around, and he's proclaiming a message that's actually kind of difficult. Repentance means stop doing the thing you're doing and turn in a new direction. So he's in a barren place preaching a difficult message, and what happens? They listen to him. In fact, the scripture just, we just read says, from all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, these people go streaming out into the wilderness to hear what John the Baptist has to say. And after they hear what he has to say, then they do it. So they repent, and then he's baptizing them in the Jordan River one after another. This guy is a superstar prophet. Now, knowing how much you all appreciate visual aids, the last couple of weeks I got really positive reinforcement for having a visual aid. I thought this would be a great point in the sermon to have a visual aid. So I thought I would try to find somebody who would be willing to play John the Baptist. So I sent out some emails and some calls to some people, and I don't know what it was. It might be his appearance because he's uh, wearing camel skin, or it might be his diet because he's eating grasshoppers and honey. That's his diet. It might be this impression of John the Baptist that he's kind of like this wild man. For whatever reason, I could get no one to bite on the invitation to come dressed like John the Baptist. So the next best thing I could do is the, the picture that I have in my mind of what John the Baptist looks like. And so this is my image. You know, there's no photo of John, but this is my image of what this guy is doing out in the wilderness. This guy's out there and preaching repentance and baptizing people in the... Now, some of you who know all of our members and some of our first service people... Who does this guy remind you of? Dave Schottmer. If you haven't seen Dave Schottmer lately, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Dave was not willing to be my uh, visual aid today. This guy was wild looking, and he had this wild mission and this wild message, and it worked. So I have in my mind a, a picture of John the Baptist before he met Jesus as being strong and confident and successful. The thing that he was called to do, he did it, and it worked. But it didn't go to his head. Now, we have some other very clear indication that John was able to kind of keep this all in perspective because a number of people came up to John the Baptist and they wanted to know, well, who are you? They said, are you uh, like one of the old-time prophets? Come back to life, reincarnate? Are you Elijah? Come back to life? Some of them even asked if he was, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've all been waiting for? Are you the guy who's going to set all things right and conquer evil? And John the Baptist had a very clear mindset about this. He says, no, I'm, I'm not the one. I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not Elijah. I'm the one who is giving testimony to the one who will come. And just to put things in perspective, this was his attitude about that. He said, when he comes, I'm not going to be worthy to tie his shoes. That's my real status. He's so much greater than me. I'm not the one. He is the one. So this is the way John the Baptist was functioning before Jesus. He was giving a testimony. And now, listen to one other experience he had In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, Jesus, immediately he saw heaven being opened from above and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came like one who said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
he gets to baptize Jesus. And right before this, presumably, he met Jesus for the first time. Well, we're not sure. There is a little confusion about this because John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin, like a second cousin. So they may have crossed paths early in their life, but they certainly were not hanging out together. They were in different circles. So when, John, when Jesus is coming to John to be baptized in the Jordan River, the first time, presumably, they meet as adults, this was John's testimony. He said, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is perhaps John the Baptist's most famous testimony about Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then presumably he baptizes him. And then there's this moment when he hears this voice from heaven saying, hey, this is my son. This is the son of God. Now, I imagine that this moment created a little bit of disconnect in John's mind. His, his very first meeting with Jesus, and he's got these two kind of conflicting images going. And we actually just sang about them in a song. The conflicting image, the difference between being the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. The Lamb of God and the Son of God. On the one hand, you're thinking, Son of God, Lion of Judah, Messiah, Conqueror, King. These are images that all bring to mind power and authority. The, the person who's going to be in charge, the person who's going to be in control, the person who has the strength and the might to fix everything that's broken. This is one image. And then on the other hand, you have this picture of the lamb. Well, what picture comes to your mind when you think of lambs? I think of these cuddly little, furry little, furball, sheep things. You know, people decorate their babies' nurseries with lambs. I, my first nursery I decorated for my firstborn was all cute little lambs for my little Kelsey. So if you're thinking about someone who's going to come and lead with might and power, you're not necessarily thinking lamb. If you were like a politician and you were trying to like design a platform to try to like gain authority, you're not going to like build a platform around being the lamb. You know, vote for Kent, he's the lamb. <laughs> no, this, this is like a disconnect, I think, in John's head. So he's trying to figure out what to do about this. But however he got it processed, it was a game changer for John because he recognized something unique about Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world and the Son of God. Well, you know, there's another image about Lamb that he probably landed on because he would have been familiar with the Old Testament and all these images of, as soon as you add the, the taking away of sins to this equation, this is really an interesting image in the Old Testament. The, the Lamb, this precious fuzzy little thing gets its throat slit to pay for our sins. So this is not a very good outcome for the lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I think all these things are going on in, in John's head. I'm not sure exactly how he reconciled all this, but it was reconciled enough to go, he's, he's the one. I know this is the Messiah. And John laid it all on the line to follow him. And then he called all of the people who were following, don't follow me. He says, no, no, it's not me. It's not about me. I'm not the one. It's this Lamb of God. Follow him. This was a game changer. It turned his world upside down. So let's look a little bit more about what happened then after he met Jesus. 
So this is some time later. We're not sure exactly how long later, but John gets arrested and he gets thrown in prison. That's a very dark day. And then this is what happens next. This is from Matthew chapter 11. Um, now John, when he heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, are you the one who is to come or is there another? This is a question of doubt now. This John the Baptist who wildly successful and powerful, he's, he's unsure. Did he, did he bet on the right horse? Are you the one or shall we look for another? Things did not turn out maybe as John first thought they would. He's suffering, he's hurting, he's all alone. And so what he's really saying to Jesus is, I'm, I'm having trouble believing in you. Are you the one? He wants to know. It's crucial now because his, his life is so messed up. This is John the Baptist, the great successful prophet, the preacher who people listened to and were repentant. This is a remarkable thing. Uh, actually, a few verses later in Matthew 11, Jesus dis- tells Matthew's disciples, um, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater. Even Jesus is like saying, John was a great, he was a great one. He's, he was successful. No one greater than John the Baptist. Strong, successful. The one who recognized Jesus when the whole world couldn't recognize him. Now he's in change facing execution, and he's got doubts. My first thought about this moment is about our posture toward people who have doubts. I think we are the kind of people who want to do the loving thing and shine light. Sometimes we can squash people who have doubts, but you know, some of the most famous heroes of the Bible were filled with doubt. Job, Jeremiah, Esther, King David. You know, about half of the Psalms are songs of doubt, like, God, where are you? God, how long will you abandon me? God, have you forgotten me? This is John's cry, really, I think. God, have you forgotten me? Where are you now? It's not supposed to go this way. I'm supposed to be strong and successful. And now I'm suffering. Are you the one or should we look for another? Now, I, I can relate to this question. I, I can because I have had times in my life when um, my life didn't turn out as I thought it should. And I blame God. I thought it was God's fault. If God, if you're really the God of the universe, the God who's in control, the God who's strong and mighty and powerful, then you should have fixed this. I shouldn't have had to endure this. I don't know if any of you have had that kind of experience, but I know I have. We've thought that there was one who would take care of us, one who would love us no matter one, no matter what, one who would give us security um, when the world is going harsh on us. Are you the one? Or is there another? Now, I've, I got some very interesting help on this part of the message from a preacher named D- D- Tim Keller. He did an excellent uh, message on John the Baptist. 
And uh, the, actually, that's in the sermon notes too. If you go to Gospel and Life podcast and listen to the sermon by Tim Keller on there, you'll, you'll find it. But he, he created a term that really helped me. The term he created here was called messiahifying. That we messiahify various things in our life thinking these are the things that are going to make our life better. These are the things that are going to fix my problems. These things are going to overcome the darkness. They're going to overcome the pain. They're going to overcome the sickness. They're going to overcome the doubt. And so we lift up various things and we messiahify them. And some of the examples of these things are things like relationships. We think if I just get that right relationship, if I just find the person to love and to love me no matter what, they'll fix my problems. Or, or maybe it's a career or maybe a bank account or a gadget or sex or alcohol or porn or success. We're looking for something to help us through difficult times. And when we're doing this search, you know what we're asking? Are you the one, Jesus? Or is there another? Should I look for someone else to take care of me when things aren't right? This is what John is asking. And I'm guessing that there was maybe a, a little misconception on John's part that helped drive this. And it was the misconception about what the Messiah really does. Because the Old Testament conception of the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to come and judge evil. He was going to come with wrath and judgment and he was going to set everything right. In order to set everything right, you got to come down hard on wickedness. You got to come down hard on what's evil. You got to, because you know what? People who are wicked and evil and doing wrong things, they don't want to change. And the reason I know that's true is because I don't want to change when I'm doing wicked things. The Messiah is going to come in power and set everything right and judge the world. This is the Messiah everybody's looking for, in, including John. And now he's wondering, if the Messiah rules with power, then the Messiah is going to surround himself with good, strong, powerful people, right? This is what the Messiah would need, somebody to run the show, someone to drive wickedness out, to help, to help bring judgment. So he's looking at his own situation and go, well, I'm the one who's supposed to be giving testimony to you, the one, and I'm in prison. Where are you now? Are you the one... Or is there someone else? This is what Jesus tells him as an answer to his question. Now see if this is satisfying for you. Jesus answered and said, Go tell John what you hear and see. Go give a testimony about Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. This is a combination of a bunch of Old Testament passages that are predicting what the Messiah is going to do. And on, on face value, you go, yeah, that sounds really good. You know, he fixes all these problems for all these people. That sounds really good. But you know what I think is lying underneath this a little bit deeper? Jesus, the Messiah, surrounded himself with weakness. All these are weak people, weak, needy people. You know, if you look at how Jesus interacted with the crowds, the, the, the powerful didn't like Jesus, the ones who were in charge didn't like Jesus, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus, the Roman authorities didn't like Jesus. None of these people who were like movers and shakers, none of them liked Jesus. You know who liked Jesus? The sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute, the sick, the lame, the blind. These people loved Jesus. Jesus surrounded himself with the weak 
And it actually gets more interesting than that, that. Then, in order to help the weak, Jesus himself took on weakness. He didn't come and say, I'm going to go raise up an army and I'm going to challenge the Roman Empire and I'm going to set this kingdom in motion. Jesus said, I'm going to humble myself and be obedient even to death on a cross where he was crucified, dead, and buried. He took on our sickness. He took on our pain. He took on our suffering. He took on our sin. He became sin for us so that he could save us. So that he could take care of us who were weak. When I'm reading John the Baptist's story, my biggest conclusion is, oh my gosh, in order to like connect with Jesus, i got to be weak. i got to admit my weakness. I have to admit I cannot save myself. I can do nothing to help myself. I need someone to save me. I need someone to rescue me. I need to admit my weakness. Jesus surrounds himself with the weak. And this is how God saves. So his message, I think, really to John the Baptist is, um, John, you don't need a strong Messiah. You need a weak Messiah. Because if you get a strong Messiah, this is what he does. He comes and he sweeps in with power and righteous judgment and he, you're doomed. But if you have a weak Messiah, he comes and he takes all of your weakness on him and then he gives you back his strength. This is the kind of Messiah we're looking for. It's the kind of Messiah John wasn't necessarily looking for, but I think once it, the light bulb came on, he recognized this is the Messiah that I need. And you know, it doesn't guarantee a great outcome. Most of you know the, the rest of the story with John the Baptist. What came next for John the Baptist? He was beheaded. So in essence, I think Jesus was saying to John, weakness is not a sign that I am not the Messiah. Weakness is a sign that I am the Messiah. And that's exactly what you need. So we like to talk about next steps. What, what is next for all of us? And I've got a few more questions today. One is, are you ready to meet this Jesus? Are you ready to meet a Jesus who's weak? And maybe related to that is a question about how does Jesus turn your world upside down. You know, John's world got turned upside down in a way he didn't really expect. I'm guessing this is part of following Jesus. We all get something turned upside down. And my hunch is it's, it's never what we expect. What, what's in your life you think God wants to turn upside down? Maybe you can discern that and talk about that with some people that care about you. And then the third next step for you, if you're willing to go deeper into this, is I do highly recommend this Gospel and Life podcast, the sermon by Tim Keller called The Great Question, Are You the One? It, it was hands down the best sermon I've heard in years. Um, so that might help encourage you and give you some more specifics about how to live this, this stuff out. But we are the kind of people who want to meet Jesus. And we want everyone around us to meet Jesus too. And we think that is the core that changes absolutely everything. Lord God, giver of every good gift, we thank you for the gift of this day. You are a good, good Father to allow us to gather here together in this place to hear your word. Thank you for the good, good gift of your Holy Spirit who comes and 
takes the, the things that are true and seals them into our hearts and takes the things that are untrue and help us to forget those and that you've given us the good, good gift of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus. We thank you and pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to support the ministry of Cedar Hills, visit www.cedarhillscr.org.